I've confessed to you before. I'm an impatient person, very impatient. I can't help myself. I try and try and try, and I sometimes get better. Yesterday, even while I was thinking about this sermon, I got impatient a few times, and I'm embarrassed by that. Uh, you know, I'm the kind of person who, you know, if I have to stop at a traffic light too long and people get all confused about who to go and how to turn and yield, I get really just tight about that. The roundabouts, oh my goodness, the roundabouts, people figure out how to use them. I get so excited about that. Of course, then I get in the wrong lane and end up somewhere else. Uh, and then after each service, people evidently identify with this because they, get, they come up with more things you know, that they're impatient with. You know, I, I, I am a counter. I count those things at the express lane at the store. That's why they call it the express lane because you're not supposed to have that many items. And, you know, people have these carts. They just keep unloading on things. And, and somebody said, oh, the bank, uh, drive-in bank line. Oh, oh, yeah, the drive-in bank line. I always pick the wrong one. I pick the one where the person goes in really slowly because they're afraid they're going to hit something. Then they can't get to the tube because they're parked so far away. They have to get out. And then they had to fill out their deposit slip. They forgot to do that because they were going to the bank. And all the while I'm thinking, I wish I were over in that lane, but I can't get out anymore. Uh, I am impatient with that kind of thing. And I have noticed people nudging each other and saying, you're impatient too. We all have those feelings of impatience. You know, there was a survey taken uh, some time back about this impatient kind of thing, and here's what it found. Uh, three, three findings I'm going to read you. While waiting in line at an officer's store, it takes an average of 17 minutes for most people to lose their patience. Oh, really? 17 minutes? I'm already way past. I'm way above average if it's, just, if it's 17 minutes. How about this one? On the phone, it takes about nine minutes for people to lose their patience. Again, I'm way above average. When I first get that, your call is very important to us, just please wait, I begin to start steaming. If my call is so important, answer it. How about this one? Women lose their patience after waiting in line for 18 minutes. For men, it's an average of 15. What I learned from the survey is people lie when they take surveys. You understand, you're thinking, 18 minutes in line? Are you kidding me? I'm already out the store and in the parking lot if it takes that long. We live in a world that we expect things quickly. We expect it our way, and we expect it done the way we think is right. At the root of all impatience is what we would call unrealistic expectations. I have a standard that I feel needs to be met, and it's my standard and needs to be met in my way, in my timetable, and if not, I get frustrated, and that frustration grows and grows and grows. It leads to anger, and I become out of control. I may say and I may do things that I later regret. Now, none of you have to raise your hand, but I bet you've all been there, maybe even this morning. Impatience can lead us places we don't want to go. Now, while I can laugh at myself and we can all laugh at ourselves at that kind of impatience, there is another kind of impatience that is even more serious, and that is an impatience with God. Sometimes our life is going along wonderfully, and all of a sudden it takes a spiral in a way we didn't predict. And we say, God, help me out of this mess now 
And we began to get impatient because God does not seem to be following our plan. Our impatience leads to anger. And our anger leads to all sorts of outcomes that we know really aren't the kind of outcomes we should be involved in. Worse, sometimes our impatience with God leads us away from Him. Do you know people that have been strong believers and then something happens in their life that just knocks them for a loop and then they'll say, I prayed, God helped me, He didn't help, I'm done with Him. He didn't do it the way I planned in my timetable, the way I wanted, and so I'm going to go find something else to do because this God thing isn't working out for me. That's the most dangerous kind of impatience we can have. Now, this problem isn't new with just us. The story today, the summit story, is found in Exodus 32. It is the story of the golden calf. Although the story really doesn't happen on the summit. It happens down in the valley with the people. Moses is on the summit speaking with God, getting instructions about how his people are to behave and how they're to be blessed in the promised land. But in the meantime, down in the valley, the people are getting impatient. The story really starts in Exodus 24, 14. Moses and Joshua are getting ready to go back up Mount Sinai, and they tell the leaders, Moses says to them, stay here, wait, go back, you know, stay with the people, we'll be back. Okay, that's 24, chapter 24. Chapter 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31 is where Moses is receiving instructions from God. The autograph tablets, he's bringing them back down to the people. Those chapters, the Bible says, takes 40 days and 40 nights. A lot of 40 days and 40 nights in the Bible. But in the, in the span of 40 days and 40 nights, God's people turn away from him because they become impatient with him. The key verse is chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered, down, uh, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Nancy Ortberg calls this frightened impatience. The people of God no longer feel connected to him. They cannot understand what he is doing, and they panic and turn to an alternative solution to their problem. They were accustomed to idol worship in Egypt, and so they turn to something that is familiar to substitute for God. So, what is an idol? For the Israelites, it's the golden calf. But it's not a golden calf for us. So how can you know what an idol is for your life? Well, an idol reflects our culture. Have you ever said to someone, probably your parents, well, everybody else is doing it, to excuse something you want to do? That's one of the things we say when we begin to turn to other idols. My mother had a solution for that. She had a... Uh, 
series of statements all involving jumping off things that she would answer. <laughs> well, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? If everybody jumped off a building, would you jump off a building? If everybody jumped off a cliff, you get the picture. You know, the idea is you don't have to do what everybody else is doing, but idols reflect our culture. And in this case, they were familiar with the golden calf, the, the worship of the bull, was a symbol, a, a worship of fertil the fertility cult in, in Egypt. And so they turn to this idol because God doesn't seem to be working out for them. An idol tends to be something that we turn to when things aren't going the way we plan. It's our default setting. Some people call that their happy place. You know, well, I just feel like I deserve it. I just don't feel well. And I just thought, you know, come on. You know, sometimes things are hard, but you don't have to turn to things that are a substitute. Idols are addictive. You never can get enough. Once you get started, you can't stop. You keep going because it has a pull on you. A little bit is fine, and then a little more is fine, and then a little more is fine, and soon you are consumed with that thing. An idol is anything or any person who consumes your attention, who becomes the focus and the center of your life. And an addiction can become that, whether it be drugs or alcohol or the secret sin of our church, food. Some, I, I, I'll confess to you again. Some Monday mornings, I come in here, I get a cup of coffee, and then I crave a donut. And I search the nooks and crannies of the church for a stale donut. You know, I'm just like an addict looking for a fix. I don't know what it is about coffee and donuts that go together. You see what happens, though? A an addiction grabs you, and all of a sudden, you can't think of anything else. That is an idol. And most critically, an idol turns your attention away from God and focuses it on something else. Examples of idols today are money, power, success, happiness, and even self. That can be an idol. And so as I look at this story and what else in Susan in uh, chapter 32, I think Bob Dylan has it figured out. you got to serve somebody. You have a choice. It's a pretty simple choice, but it becomes complicated because we make it so. You either serve God or you build a golden calf. You either follow and obey him or you go a different way. It doesn't matter what the different way is. It's just different than following God. So here's some things to think about and remember as you try to make that choice between serving God and serving your own golden calf. The one thing I want you to remember is God is always up to something. You see, the Israelites' problem was they didn't know what he was up to. And so while Moses is up on that mountain getting instruction from God, they were assuming nothing was happening because they didn't know about the plan. Just because you don't know the plan doesn't mean God isn't working. And in fact, if you could figure out the plan, it probably wouldn't be a very good plan. God is always working. Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working Paul says in a familiar passage in Romans, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
Again, in Ephesians, Paul says, Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for He chose us in advance, and He makes everything work out according to His plan. These words, work, connected with God, are the idea of engaged and energetic and activity. Paul says, even if you don't see it, God is always working. If you even don't know the plan, you don't have to know the plan. Be assured that God is always working. Henry Nouwen says, God is doing something right now. A second thing I see is that not only not knowing gets in our way, but our feelings get in our way. Feelings aren't facts. Just because I don't feel like God is working doesn't mean He isn't working. It's a normal experience for people of God to do this. I mean, it's, it's normal for us to, to, to judge things by our feelings. People of God have always struggled with this. The doubt that they have about, is God really doing anything? Because I don't feel anything. Our culture, I think, makes it even more difficult because we're such a feeling culture. If I don't feel like it, it's not happening. I don't want to do it. If I don't feel like it, you know, I do whatever I want to. Frightened impatience with God is nothing new. You know, in the Old Testament... The people of God struggled with this idolatry problem through the whole, the whole book, all the books of the Old Testament. Here, here are two fairly common words that you probably will know. Polytheistic and monotheistic. Monotheistic is the following of one God. Polytheistic is many gods. The, the Israelites came out of a polytheistic culture, many gods. The, the Egyptians worshipped all sorts of gods, you know, God for every occasion. They're being led into monotheism, the one true God. But yet, they doubt and they waver back and forth. Now, let me put you on a, another word that you can uh, look up in Wikipedia this afternoon if you don't believe me. It's called henotheism. And basically, henotheism is my God is bigger than your God sort of an approach. The idea that there are many gods in the world, but my God is the most powerful. And I think that's kind of where Israel is right now. And so they're hedging their bet. They can't see where God is working right now, so then a golden calf might, we'll fall back on the golden calf because we're used to that. But God is working even when I don't feel like it. Job had this problem. Habakkuk talked about it. Most of the prophets talked about it. Even Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? That's why Paul, I think, says in uh, um, 1 Corinthians, run from idolatry in every form, because we are always tempted after 40 days and 40 nights to move on to the next thing, because God isn't working out for us. And I see here that the crowd is easily led astray. Public opinion in this story forced, not, it didn't take Aaron much time to build this golden calf. You, you read in the subsequent verses of Exodus 32, Aaron has a plan pretty quick. The people kind of say, we need something else because God isn't working out. Aaron says, well, bring your gold together and we'll fashion us an idol. And so he, it seems that he or maybe the craftsman under his direction fashioned this calf or bull out of hammered gold on this idol. And it seemed good to the people. You know what Aaron said? Well, let's have a feast day tomorrow to worship. And back in chapter 24, guess who Moses put in charge? Aaron. The inmates are running the asylum. Aaron knew better. 
The people knew better, but their impatience and doubt drove them back to the idol, to their comfort zone. And they should have known better because they had been visited supernaturally by God. Do you remember the parting of the Red Sea? Everybody's seen the Ten Commandments, surely. You remember the parting of the Red Sea? And remember the plagues before that? God has intervened for them. They have seen proof of His existence, and yet they still doubt. I hear people bargain with God today. Oh, if you just give me a miracle, just give me a miracle and I will believe. These people had the miracles and it took them 40 days to turn away. Miracles don't work. They don't last. Hmm. So how does this apply to us today? Paul says, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. We're to learn from history. That's why the story is here. We don't have to make the same mistakes they made because it turned out disastrously for them. Moses comes down from the mountain. He, he in his anger, shatters the tablets. They drink this bitter water from the tablet powder. The, the people of God who are loyal, the Levites, begin to execute those who were idolaters. And God sends a plague as a result of their disobedience. It doesn't turn out well for those people who turn to the idol. So we need to learn from history. We need to remember these things. I'll quickly remind you again, it's okay, it's normal to feel like God is not there. Some great people have felt that way. It's what you do with that feeling that's important. If the heroes of the Bible struggled with that, so will you. Their prayers are honest. God, where are you in this? Not covering it up, but confessing the fact that they cannot see or feel God, but they choose to remain loyal. Jesus says the same thing. You know, not my will, but yours be done. Help my unbelief is a good place to start. I, I want to believe. I want to believe. I don't want to doubt. Help me. Here's a quote. I wonder who said this. Listen. Darkness is such that I really do not see neither with my mind nor with my reason, the place of God in, in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God, the torture and pain I can't explain. What a poor soul. What a person who was so struggling in the dark. Do you know who said that? In 1961, that was a letter written by Mother Teresa. A person we would say in the 20th century was as much of a servant of God and a person who did good things as anybody we know. But from 1961 to her death, she could not see God in anything she did. She was operating in the dark. And that's what faith is all about, operating in the dark. Though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. So we hang on and we hang in. It's all we can do unless we choose the golden calf. So what do you do while you hang on and hang in? Well, you keep doing what you know you should be doing. You keep obeying God. It's pretty simple. If we only had the Sermon on the Mount, we'd have enough to do. 
Think of some of the things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not put God to the test. Worship and serve God only. Resolve your anger. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Be reconciled to others. Settle matters quickly. Give. Pray. If you just had that, that would give you plenty to do while you're waiting for God. And yet we have so much more. I like what Bob Goff tweeted a few weeks ago. Quit waiting for God to give you a plan when you know his intent. Love God, love people, do stuff. That's what you do while you hang in there and hang on. Love God, love people, do stuff. That's faith. Sometimes the greatest points of spiritual growth come in, the, in your place of darkness, in your valley. Think about it this way. When you're physically full, food doesn't sound very good to you. I couldn't eat another bite. I'm stuffed. You've said that. But when you are empty spiritually, there is the place God can fill you. When you've filled yourself with your own ideas, your own plans, your own timetables, God has no room to move. But when you are spiritually low, you turn and tune in. You can turn and tune into things of God. Or you can choose to walk the other way. It can be a place of great spiritual growth. The, 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 the biographer of Mother Teresa said this about her darkness. The paradox is that for her to be a light, she was to be in darkness. And maybe, just maybe, part of the adventure that God has for you is to be in darkness and work your way out of it somehow. It's one thing to feel that God is not with you. It's another thing to believe that God does not exist. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. One more thing I would suggest to you, and I think it's a very critical thing as a point of, of reflection and assessment today, is choose your friends wisely. Nowen says, Henry Nowen says, the companionship of trusted friends allows us to see how God is at work. Is this happening in your life? Do your friends help you see how God is at work? Or are they like the crowd? Do they take you towards the golden calf? Do they support your belief in God and your struggle and your pain? Or do they say, that God thing doesn't work, come with me, we'll try this. Someone once said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Okay? That's your exercise. If you don't do it right now, do it after a while. Think of the five people you spend the most time with. Add that up. Divide by five. Do you like the answer? That may tell you a lot about where you are in your own spiritual life right now. Bad company corrupts good morals. Where are you? Sometimes the solution to your spiritual struggle is real simple. Are you ready for it? Get your pen and paper out. Three words. Get new friends. I'm not kidding. Bad company corrupts good morals. If the children of Israel would not have listened to those voices... They wouldn't have turned from God. But Aaron, who was supposed to be in charge, went along. Who are you spending time with? Now, I know some of you, 
Oh, but I need to be evangelistic and bring others to Jesus. That's why I hang out with them, because I'm going to reform them. If they pull you down, you're not ready to reform anybody. When you are strong enough, you may do that. But until you are, you better hang around with the right people, or they're going to lead you down the path to building and worshiping your own golden calf. Let me give you a, a shameless commercial. Uh, last week, all of you were, many of you were inspired by our speaker about discipling and discipleship and how you'd like to be better disciples. That's been a topic of conversation here. That's great. Sermons are supposed to do that. Now, here's the thing. You can't disciple anybody if you don't have the right circle of friends because you're not worthy of being followed, for one thing. And by the way, on Wednesday night this week, uh, 6.30 in the the fellowship hall, if any of you want to get together with me and talk about discipling, I'm going to be there. If some of you have made a commitment to say, I want to be a better discipler, I'd be glad to have a conversation with you about that very thing. But remember, it starts with relationships. So if you don't have better friends, and if you're not a good friend, that's where you start. I reminded you of the consequences of disobedience, of making a choice to follow a golden calf, but I'm thankful that God doesn't send plagues and avenging angels today. But he has another plan. God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So it comes down to really two choices. You've got to serve somebody, God's way or your way. Either He is on the throne or you're worshiping your own form of the golden calf. How do you know today what you are worshiping? Let me close with Louis Giglio's words. What do you worship? It's easy. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your loyalty. At the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever or whomever is on that throne, it's what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you idolize. It's what you worship. It's your golden calf. We might never really say, I worship money or power or myself, but the trail never lies. We may say we value this thing or that thing more than any other, but the volume of our actions speaks louder than our words. You got to serve somebody. What do your actions show today? That's the choice you have to make.